The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 54 of The Murder of My Family. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Just a quick reminder, CrimeCon is three months away in beautiful Orlando this May. I'll be on Podcast Row supporting my podcast, and I hope to see you there. If you want to go to CrimeCon, be sure to use my promo code, which is CRIMINOLOGY2020, to save 10% on your standard badge during checkout at CrimeCon.com. And one last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support this show. It's with our sponsors' support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. 18-year-old Calvin Bud Lane disappeared from Tucson, Arizona, February 1969, 51 years ago. Although Bud didn't always get along with his dad, it was his father's tireless search for him which resulted in the discovery of Bud's remains in 1978. It turns out, his body had actually been found a few months after he vanished, but was listed and buried as a John Doe. The identity of Bud's killer remains unknown. Calvin Bud Lane was born on June 15, 1950, to Charles and Martha Jean Lane. He was the oldest of four children. Bud's father was a funeral director, and the family resided in Tucson, Arizona. Bud dropped out of high school his senior year, and didn't really know what the future held for him. Friends described Bud as a happy-go-lucky, nice and polite, quiet teenager, and he had a girlfriend named Diane. Bud met Diane at Johnny's Speedway, a popular diner where local kids loved to hang out. Diane worked at Johnny's and was 16 at the time they met. She later described Bud as very fun and very loving, a giving person. And after they started dating, she became pregnant with Bud's baby. 
This really caused Bud to reevaluate his future. In February 1969, the Lane family sold their Tucson home, and they prepared to move to El Paso, Texas, where Charles had accepted a position with a mortuary. Bud had recently started a job as a short-order cook at a restaurant called Ham and Eggers, located at 1704 North Miracle Mile Strip, which is now Oracle Road. While the Lanes planned to move to El Paso, Bud decided he was going to stay in Tucson and make a life for himself there. His father, Charles, told him he would have a hard time supporting himself on a cook's wages and encouraged Bud to find a better-paying job. On Saturday, February 21st, 1969, Bud told his parents he had an interview lined up for another job. When he didn't come home for dinner that night, his parents weren't too concerned. But when morning arrived and Bud still wasn't home, Charles called several of Bud's friends looking for him, but none of his friends had seen him. Charles called the man that Bud had an interview with, and he told Charles that Bud never showed up for the interview. Two days later, Charles filed a missing persons report, but police didn't seem to do too much, and told Charles that his son was an adult and could disappear if he wanted to. But Bud's family, as well as his girlfriend Diane, never believed Bud left on his own accord. From the minute Bud started working at the Ham and Eggers restaurant, Charles knew something wasn't right about the place. Not long after Bud disappeared, a cook there moved out of town the following Friday. A waitress named Jackie and her husband Jim left town the following Monday. The owner of the restaurant shut down Ham and Egger the following Wednesday. Charles Lane believed these people had a hand in his son's disappearance, or at the very least, knew what had happened to him. Before the cook fled Tucson, Diane visited him at the motel where he lived. She said he appeared paranoid. He was 10 years older than Bud, and Diane thought he was just plain creepy. The day before he vanished, Bud had promised to bring Diane a big gift. She asked the cook about the gift and where Bud was. The cook told her the gift was a Corvette, but this didn't seem like a realistic gift, considering Bud didn't have much money and was working as a shorter cook. But based on the information, the sheriff's office theorized that Bud was dealing drugs. In the July 4, 1999 issue of the Arizona Daily Star, Bryn Baylor wrote, quote, By the early 1970s, Deaths and drug rip-offs would become common in Tucson. Newsweek magazine went on to say that Tucson was fast becoming to marijuana what Milwaukee was to beer. But Charles Lane never believed his son was a dealer, even though he once found marijuana joints in Bud's car. Charles suspected that Ham and Egg was a front for a drug business operated by the owner. When all the employees fled town soon after Bud's disappearance, it only seemed to confirm things for Charles. The investigation into Bud's disappearance was bungled from the start. Someone misfiled the missing persons report with cases that had already been solved. Deputies failed to follow up on any leads or information given to them, including the name, addresses, and phone numbers of Bud's friends. Charles Lane decided to search for his son himself. For years, he and Martha Jean followed up on any information they found or received on their son's fate. They traveled out of state a few times, and even called the U.S. Consulate in Mexico City. By 1977, the Lanes were desperate for information regarding their son, and they visited the psychic. Charles told the woman that he wanted to discuss his missing son with her. She told him many things that would later ring true. Bud was taken into the desert and beaten to death. 
and she went on to tell Charles that Bud was buried in a shallow grave near a dry riverbed that was 300 yards from a well-traveled road. She told him his attackers were three males and two females, who were all involved in narcotics. The details were hard for Charles to hear, and he didn't know if he could put any faith in what she had to say, but he was willing to listen. The woman told him there were two cars involved, a late brown Chrysler-type car and another faded light blue Ford, a sort of jalopy-type car. It just so happened that the waitress Jackie, who left town, drove a tan Plymouth Valiant, and the cook drove a light blue Ford. The psychic couldn't see the license plate numbers, but said the blue car had Nevada plates. The cook turned out to be from Las Vegas. Although he had no way of knowing whether any of the information was true, Charles kept all of it in his mind. Not long after visiting the psychic, Charles and Martha Jean ended their marriage. By this time, their other children had grown up. Charles returned to Tucson, took a job at Evergreen Mortuary Cemetery in Memorial Park. One day in 1978, Charles was working when he came across John Doe cards in the file room. The cards listed unidentified people buried in the county cemetery. The second card he looked at was a John Doe that matched Bud's age and who was buried only four months after Bud vanished. Charles knew in his heart that this might be his son. But by this time, he was bitter towards the sheriff's office over their bungled investigation into Bud's case. It took him three days to call and speak to a detective. But luckily for Charles, there was a new detective named Sergeant John Jett of the Pima County Sheriff's Office, and he wanted to help. Jett hadn't heard of Bud's case personally, but he decided to investigate it after speaking with Charles. He found the 1969 missing police report. Sergeant Jett began the long process of identifying the John Doe. He compared crime scene photos with Lane family pictures. He searched records and sent hair samples from the remains and those taken from Bud's personal belongings that were still stored in the sheriff's office. The state crime lab in Phoenix would compare all the evidence, and it turned out the hair samples matched. The unidentified John Doe was really Bud Lane, and eerily similar to what the psychic had told Charles, Bud's body was found in a shallow grave in the desert near an arroyo and not far from Ryan Airfield off Ajo Way and Sandaria Road. Sergeant Jett also noted something bizarre about the body. Someone had dug up the remains about a month after burial and removed them from the county cemetery. They were found a week later by a group of children playing in a desert less than a block away. The Lane family later had Bud's remains buried in a family cemetery in Texas. During the investigation, Bud's girlfriend Diane underwent hypnosis to uncover the name of the cook from Ham and Eggers. She said she had forgotten it over the years. After hypnosis, Diane came to believe that his name was Danny Smith, but Charles knew him as Danny Shaw. Despite both names, detectives were never able to positively identify him. They also determined that the owner of the Hammenager restaurant was a man named Lloyd Ganger. His name appeared as L. Danger on some 1969 city permits. Neither Lloyd nor his wife Ruby have ever been found. In 1991, an anonymous person mailed a typewritten letter to the Pima County Sheriff's Office. The letter referred to Bud as Ricky and read in part, This is being sent to you because I believe his parents should know what happened to him. And if the body can be found, be allowed to recover it. The letter was postmarked Phoenix and gave directions to the location of Bud's body. The author never came forward. Apparently, 
the letter writer didn't know that Bud's remains had been found years earlier. Unfortunately today, decades later, Bud's case remains unsolved. It's been 51 years, and his killer has never been caught. Charles Lane passed away in 2008 at the age of 78. Lynetta, Bud's sister, is his only surviving sibling, and she's still seeking answers in her brother's case. She sat down to talk to me about Bud's case. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hey everyone, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Best Fiends. You've heard me talk about Best Fiends before. Most of you know that true crime is my passion, but even someone like me needs a break from it every once in a while. So when I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a fun game that has a great puzzle-solving aspect to it, and an ongoing story that unfolds as you play. What I really like about Best Fiends is that the game really stimulates your brain and can be played casually. It's got a great-looking design and bright, bold colors. I've been playing and getting better, and I'm up to level 48, but I'm still trying to catch up to my wife who's on level 61. So watch out, here I come. You can collect lots of different characters that you strategically use for each level. What's great is that you don't even need the internet to play, so it's perfect to play while traveling. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Hi, Lynn, and thanks for joining me to discuss your brother Calvin's case with us. Hello. Good to talk with you. So, so Calvin was known, I guess, to people that were close to him as, as Bud, so we'll refer to Bud the rest of the way through here. Um, right. If, if you would, take us back to 1969. Um, how many of you were there in your family? What was your uh, family home life like? Uh, it was my mother and, and father and three brothers, Bud, Gary, and Jimmy. And were you the what age, were you were you age wise in in the mix? I was the middle, the second child. Bud was the oldest, and then myself, and then Gary and Jimmy. Was it a real tight knit uh, family? Were you close to, to each other? Uh, yes and no. My my dad was very very strict, and so. Uh, we tried to stay away from him as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, and your father um, was a uh, an undertaker. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So that that must have been probably a little bit different than most than most of your friends' parents what they did for a living. Yeah, quite a bit different. And, and do you think some of that um, affected the way he acted around um, your family? I think so. What kind of what kind of things did you you do together as a uh, as kids to to try and you said you mentioned avoid him a little bit. What kinds of things did you do to to stay out of his hair? Uh, we had horses, so we would ride horses and uh, stay away from the house. Basically, you know, like kids do, go out and play. And and did most of the stuff you did, did it uh, happen, like, right around home? Did you go out in the neighborhood and stuff, too? Yeah, we stayed at home. We we weren't allowed to go anywhere. 
my mom and dad both worked, so we had to stay at home during the day while they were gone. Was it you being one of the older kids, was it your responsibility to help watch um, the younger kids? Yes. With me being the only girl, I was uh, responsible for the housework and the cooking and all that. Well, so it's sort of an old-fashioned uh, arrangement. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, were you, were you, you know, you're growing up with these, these boys. Were you a bit of a tomboy yourself? Oh, yes. How was Bud? Um, how did Bud treat you? Did, did he protect you at all, being the, the oldest? Did he sort of stick up for you if you ever needed that? Oh, well, not really. He had a different set of friends than I had. Um, he was, to, to us, he was a bully. He was the big brother, and, you know, you do what I say, or I'm going to beat the crap out of you, and, you know, things like that. Now, mixed in with that that older brother bully type of stuff, did you ever have moments that you were that he was you know close or you were kind? He was kind to you, and you had close moments together. Oh yeah, we you know we'd go on picnics and and stuff like that. And he, <laughs> when my mom and dad was gone at night, him and I would take the uh, one of the cars and go out playing in the car where my mom and dad didn't know nothing about it. So we, we did all right. We, we were pretty close. Yeah. Tell us a, a little bit about Bud specifically. What kind of person was he uh, all around? Well, he was, like I said, he was the big brother. So that kind of made him, he was a little mean. He, he liked to brag. He, he was, I don't know how to how to put it. He, if you did something, he'd already done that. You know, he was one of those kind of people. That that's why I'm kind of wondering. You know, if if maybe what happened to him was because of that. Maybe he had told somebody that he could get get something, and when it come right down to it, he couldn't get it, and they got mad at him or something. I don't know. That's just kind of what I feel. So maybe he liked to sort of impress people, telling them yes, things that yes, he could do he or did. things he had done. Okay. Was was he popular? Did he have a lot of friends and a lot of people that he associated with? No, he did not. In fact, I can't. I only remember him bringing home like one or two guys. I don't remember him bringing home a lot of people. In, in early 1969, there were some big changes on the horizon for your family as far as moving to Texas for your dad's job that he mm-hmm. had lined up. Um, your parents had already sold the house. Was that move something that you were all looking forward to? Not really. You know, my dad, he chased the jobs. Whatever, wherever he thought he could get a, a better job, then that's where we went. And, uh, you know, we lived in El Paso before, and so he knew where we were going and all that. But as far as us, I was I was happy in Tucson. I had friends there. I didn't want to go. I think it's hard for any teenager, especially that's got friends and they're in school and stuff, to just uproot and move to a, another area. Mm-hmm. And how about your, your younger brothers? Were, were they uh, 
pretty open to it, or did, were they having issues going too? They were all right. They they liked it. They liked moving. They liked going different places. Yeah. And how did how did Bud specifically take the news that they were moving? You know, I really don't remember him saying one way or another. I re- I just don't remember. And I, I would think he's eighteen, so he's he's technically an adult at the time. Um, uh-huh. And I'm sure he's got some ideas of what he wants to do. And uh, but he, I guess, apparently told your parents that he planned to stay behind once the family moved. How, how did your parents react to the news that he wasn't moving with them? That he was going to sort of go off on his own and stay there. My dad didn't like it because he wouldn't have that control. You know, he, he thought he had to have control over all of us. And with Bud growing up and, and getting a job and everything, he was losing that control already. And then when he told them that he wanted to stay there, my dad didn't like it very well. Did, did, you, did Bud and your dad get along for the most part? Uh, for the most part, uh, there was a couple of times when we were younger that uh, he and my dad got into it, and you know, my dad was a big man. He was like six two and probably two thirty, two forty. And he, with him being a, a mortician, you know, moving bodies around, he had a lot of upper body strength. And uh, Bud, he was just a skinny kid, you know. He he was six four, but he was about as big around as a toothpick. And uh, when him and my dad would get into it, you know, of course, Bud would come out on the bottom. And that's how my dad kept control over him, was because he was stronger than he was, basically, is what it boiled down to. So sometimes things turn physical, it sounds like. Oh, yes, they did. Was that something that that you and your younger uh, brothers had to witness uh, frequently? Yes. Oh, it, it wasn't just Bud. It was all of us. You know, if if we if one of us did something, then we all got a spanking. And it wasn't a spanking. It was a beating. My dad used a, a plastic braided dog leash on us. So consequently, you know, that was back when girls still had to wear dresses to school. And I would go to school with whelps on my legs from my dad. And I, I think... So, you know, really, our our home life when we were growing up wasn't all that great because of the fact that we were afraid of my dad. Yeah. He was I... such a, a disciplinarian that we were afraid to do anything. And, uh, and when I got... 13, I started running away from home just to get away from them. So, you know, our, our home life wasn't all that great. My dad wanted to make it out like, you well, know, we were the best family in the block, and we weren't. It sounds like he was the like an old-school disciplinarian. Some of the stuff that he maybe did to, to keep yeah. you in line was, wasn't something that people do today, probably. No. If he he did some of the stuff that he used to do now, they would lock him up. Well, it it, it sounds like Bud at this point 
when when you're getting ready to move, he's got that independence and he wants to go out and get a job. Um, now I, I've read a couple different reports. I read through a couple different articles. Uh, one of the articles said that he, the day he vanished, he was on his way to apply at Hammenegger's. Another um, report I read said that he had already been working for a short time at this place called Hammenegger's. Um, do you know, yes. can you clarify that a little bit for me and tell me exactly what the situation was? He had was? been working there. And he was not happy with something. I don't remember what it was. So he, the day that he left, he was going out to find another job. But he had already been working at the Hammenegger. And, and do you know how long he had worked there? Was it? It wasn't too long, I take it. No, it wasn't a month. It was, you know, just a few weeks. And I know one of the things I read was one of the reasons your your father didn't approve of of that job from because he didn't think he was going to make enough money to make it on his own when when the family moved away. Um, do you yeah. remember, Do you remember some of those conversations between your, your your dad and him? No, my dad wouldn't. He when he had one of us under the gun, he'd take us off and to their bedroom to talk. So we never we never knew what their talks were about. Gotcha. Um, so he eventually on February twenty first, nineteen sixty nine, he leaves. Uh, he's going to apply for a new job because he's unhappy with this ham and eggers place. Um, mm-hmm. And then he he disappears. Um, yeah. When did your family? I mean, when when do you remember your parents becoming aware of that and and being concerned about that? Well, when when he didn't come home that first night, of course, you know, they were mad. Uh, and uh, that's about all I remember is just them being mad. And then the next day, you know, we were we were all busy packing and stuff, getting ready to move. And all I can remember is my dad just being mad all day long. And I really don't remember how long it was before they went to the morgue, I mean, before they went to the police, it doesn't seem like it was very long, maybe maybe three or four days, something like that. I don't remember. Did it seem, like, odd to you that Bud wasn't around? Yes, it did. But, uh, see, before, before this, he had been living here in Texas with my grandparents. And he got in some trouble here, so my mom and dad took him back home with them. And that's why he was with us Why when he was 18, because he had gotten in trouble here in Texas. So they, like I said, they, they come and picked him up and took him back to Arizona. And he hadn't been living with us for very long, probably just a couple months when he disappeared. Uh, and eventually, you know, your parents, you mentioned they do contact the police because they know that it's something's wrong. He's He's been gone now a few days. Do you know uh-huh. what the police said um, initially, what, what the interaction was between your parents and the police? Yes, I do. They told my dad that he was 18 and had the right to get lost if he wanted to. That was their exact words. They had his body in the morgue then, 
and wouldn't even cooperate with my dad. Just said that he's old enough to leave if he wanted to. That was it. So immediately it, it wasn't treated as something happened to him. It was more a case of he went off on his own and he has the right to do that. Yes. Yes. And 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 not to so that the people listening don't get mixed up. Now you mentioned at this point they have his body in the morgue. Um, yes, they did. They, he had already been found, and they had him in the morgue at that time. So this body is found, and I, I take it it was a John Doe body at the time they were calling it. Yes. Uh, but he met, the body did match the description of your brother. Yes. Um, and, and do you know anything? How, how was he killed? He was beaten to death. And, and where was he found, the body? Out in the desert. So Out like, by Ryan Field. Okay, so almost like he, that he was beaten to death and then his body disposed of uh, not right in town, but on the outskirts. No, it was. He was, they found him in a shallow grave. He, they said that he hadn't, they didn't even try to cover him up. They just dug a little ditch and just throwed him in it. So at the time, your fam- the police have this body that is going to later turn out to be your brother, but your family doesn't yes. know it because the police just, the police either know that it's him and don't tell your family that it's him, or they just don't even have an idea that the body they just found is your brother one way or another. Your family's left wondering yeah. what happened to Bud. Um, right. How how difficult? Now, obviously, um, your family with your dad and stuff didn't always get along, but obviously their son being uh, missing, I assume they were pretty upset about that. Yes, they were. What, what kind of – was your dad, uh, like, wandering around looking for your brother on his own, sort of doing his own investigation? Uh, they went to the Ham and Agar, and that's about all I can remember. As far as him going around and and talking to his friends and stuff like that, he really didn't know who to go talk to because they didn't tell him who his friends were. He didn't tell him anything that he didn't have to tell him. So my dad didn't know nothing, really. So he has a lost son out there, and he's sort of, Police aren't helping him. He's going to question people on his own, but he doesn't really know who to question or Mm -hmm. what what to ask. Yes. He did talk to his girlfriend at the time, and she didn't know anything. So I think that's about all that that he could talk to because he didn't know anybody else. And his girlfriend was a girl named Linda, correct? No, it was not. Her name was... Her name was Diana. I don't know where they come up with this Linda from, but that was not her name. Gotcha. Thanks for thanks for pointing that up because the articles I read did say Linda. Um, so, but she couldn't provide any information. She didn't know where Bud was at. No. Uh, when when he's talking to her, she doesn't know. Um, I read in the paper that she did have some su- suspicions about somebody that worked with but at the restaurant. Do you know anything mm-hmm. about those suspicions about the the people there? No, I don't. Okay. 
Um, I, I never met them. Uh, I was only there like just a couple of times to go pick him up from work. And that was it. I didn't go in. I didn't meet people or anything. And your father, I, I take it, became a little bit suspicious of that place. Do you know anything about his suspicion of that place? Why he suspected something was up with it? I really don't know. Um, at the time, I, I don't think that he was suspicious of anything. I think it was after my brother had disappeared. That's when he started to be suspicious. And especially when everybody just packed up and left. It wasn't very long after Bud disappeared that everybody left. They closed the restaurant down and everything. In, so the the whole business essentially closed and um, everyone that worked there scattered. Yes. And and one thing that's interesting is I, when I was researching, I found a lot of advertisements for this restaurant hiring people for cooks. And, and uh -huh. there's a, a bunch of the ads and then all of a sudden they stop right around the time your brother goes missing. So it, it does seem almost uh -huh. as if as soon as he goes missing, this place... The advertisements for for cooks there stop, and then uh -huh. you know, they go out of business. Um, in the years since, were, were, was anybody able to find out more about this restaurant? Who owned it? Who worked there? Anything uh, over the last fifty years? Has anybody uncovered any of that stuff? Not as far as I know. And and your your father didn't give up on looking for your brother. And um, you mentioned that he constantly moved around to different jobs. One of his jobs, um, I, I take it was back in the Arizona area, and he was looking, he got the idea to look through some uh, some John Doe's that had been buried in, in cemeteries. Is that correct? Uh-huh. Yes. And that's how he discovered a, a body that the police had found that he thought was close to your brother as far as description and everything. Um, and mm -hmm. he started he started suspecting that may be Bud. Um, what did he do? Well, he, he had found he had found three bodies that were basically, you know, the same uh, description as my brother. And they were all uh, passed away about the same time. So my grandmother had my brother's uh, brush and comb and stuff like that from when he lived with them, and she sent it out to my dad, and that's how they made a positive ID on his body was from the hair that my grandmother had. And do you know if, if, and, if, if after that they did any other kind of, uh, like, dental or DNA or anything since then to, to positively ID it? No, um... When when they when my dad ID'd the body, they had taken pictures, you know, of the evidence. Well, my brother had this great big scar on the back of his neck that when he was a, a child they had taken a a mole or wart or something off of his neck and it left this great big scar. And my dad identified that in the pictures and the shape of his ear and stuff like that. His face had been uh, eaten off by the predators. But he did identify that scar on the back of his neck oh, that must have been and his hair. That must have been difficult for your father to look at that 
kind of stuff. I'm sure. Wow. And so he determined, you know, based on all this stuff, that it's definitely Bud. Did he at that point Mm -hmm. question why the police had never told your family about that body that they had found? Well, yeah. He didn't get any answers. It was the sheriff himself. I can't remember his name now, but it was... It was the sheriff himself that told my dad that. So here so, they have this body all along. Your brother goes missing, uh-huh. and they didn't put two and two together that this this body that they had was your brother. Right. That, that they didn't to want to. And that they didn't to... want to work on it. Why? You, I don't know. And that's what I was going to ask you. Do you think it was out of laziness or out of – were they hiding something? Um What's your thought on that? Well, I don't know. You know, later, since then, I have found out that at that time, uh, the mafia was very, very active in Tucson. So I don't know if, if that's an avenue that needs to be explored or what. But I just, I kind of feel like it might have something to do with it. And maybe that your brother knew something or heard something or had had something that somebody... Exactly. Exactly. So it's 50 years, over 50 years since since your brother went missing and and was murdered. Um, How how tough was it on your your family after they found out that it was definitely Bud? How did you all take that news that, that he had been murdered? Well, you know, it, it's after all that time, we 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 already knew that he was dead. You know, it's we just knew it. And then when they did find his body and exhumed him, and they brought him back to Texas, and we buried him in a family plot here in Texas. So you know, we had already grieved for what thirty years or better. So. I don't know, we just kind of went along with our lives. And and was it, you know, any time a parent loses a child, I assume that that would be really tough. Did your, your parents, could you tell that they were they were hurt, that they had lost their oldest son? No, not really. I couldn't tell a difference in either one of them, you know. I never saw my mom cry over him, which when I lost my child, you know, I I was devastated. But I never I never saw either one of them put out any emotion because he was gone. I guess they must have been good at keeping their feelings in. Uh, and I think maybe 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 that's something to do with your your dad's job of of being in that industry where he has to work with, you know, and not show too much emotion. Yes, I have often wondered that because he was so, so hard, you know. I was, of course, you know, being a kid, I thought it was the chemicals that he was working with did something to him. But he was just, I don't know, he was just really hard, just cold-hearted. And it, you know, here it's it's fifty years later. Um, 
what what are your hopes? Are are you still hopeful that somebody out there maybe knows what happened to your brother and they'll come forward? Yes, I am. I would like that. You know, I I, I would like to know how he died and why he died. I'd like to know where his child is that we've never seen. And and that's one thing we didn't talk about. Can you talk a little bit about more about his child? He was born September the 21st, 1969, in El Paso at Hotel Du Home for Unwed Mothers. And uh, he, Diana had called my mother before he was born. Her folks had sent her there to have the baby, and she was supposed to give him up for adoption. She was not to uh, contact my family, but she did anyway. And when he was born, my mother went to the hospital to see him. And like I said, we were under the impression that she had to give this child away, so we thought he was gone. We didn't know. Well, here... A few years ago, they had aired the, his case on TV again, and I called out there and talked to a detective that I gave him all the information that I had, and he called me back, and he had found this child, or he had found the records of this child there in El Paso, and he gave me his name, and... It did not, he didn't say whether he had been adopted or not. But after that, at least we had his name, which hasn't helped me a bit. I still haven't been able to find anything about him. So you at least want the chance to see, to meet your, uh, your, your brother's son. Cause that's the, yes. only, the only part of him that's left. Yes. You know, and if for nothing else, to give him the, the medical information on our family. You know, that's worth something. Sure. Maybe he wants to know where he came from. I would love to be able to see him, to meet him, and to know him. And I think maybe that time, that era back in the, you know, 50 years ago, things were so much different that um, some things were, you mentioned the home for unwed mothers. I don't even know if they have anything like that anymore. Um, well, they closed that one down shortly after he was born. Yeah, it was definitely definitely a different time back then, and a lot of things were different. Yes, it from, was from what they are now. Yes, it was. But it, it it sounds like one way or another, you haven't forgotten your brother fifty years later, and you're still um, still out there trying to figure out what happened. And and one thing we'll we'll ask that people listen, if especially if they're hearing this and they lived in Arizona at the time, maybe they have information about the the people that worked at the Ham and Eggers there in Tucson um, during 1969, and maybe they'll come forward with some information and contact the police. That would be great. Well, Lynn, I can't thank you enough for coming forward to talk to, to us about Bud's case. I know it's been a long uh, road for you and uh, not easy for your family, but I appreciate you taking the time to talk about him with us. Well, thank you for working on this. Hopefully something will come of it. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Thanks goes out to Debbie Buck at TrueCrimeDiva.com for writing and research assistance in this episode. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. As we wrap up this episode, I'd like to invite you to listen to a preview of a true crime podcast that mixes in some humor to help lighten the mood. It's called I Said Goddamn, so be sure to give it a listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hey, true crime listeners, check out our podcast, I Said Goddamn. We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say goddamn. Every Sunday, we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of. Along the way, we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language. Listen every Sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories. Also, follow us on Twitter at ISGDpodcast or visit our website, isgdpodcast.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.